Welcome to any visitors that we have here with us today. Thank you so much for joining. It's great that you're with us. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot them at us, and we would love to get to know you and your family. And we are winding down our current series. We have just today and next week left in this one, and then we'll start a new one in December. And today we're talking about maybe one of the most forgotten sins of all time. (laughs) And also that can make it one of the most dangerous. What I'm talking about this morning is gluttony. And I know this can be a sensitive topic for some, and this is not meant to instill any shame in anyone. And so from the outset, I just want to say that this is something that probably affects every single person in here. Because what we're doing is looking at the heart. This is a heart issue. And that's what we're going to be doing is examining ourselves inward today. I wonder how many of you have ever heard a sermon on this topic in your life. I imagine a lot of you probably haven't. I think I have had maybe one. But normally it's something we totally skip over and it makes sense as to why. As to why we skip over it. Because gluttony is so ingrained into the fabric of our society that we can't even recognize it anymore. It's ingrained in our culture to the point where we believe that our bodies are our own and we can do whatever we want with them. We can idolize our bodies and or simultaneously do some serious violence to them. Whether that's from the sheer amount of portion that we eat, whether that's from eating foods with all these sorts of chemicals that we can't even pronounce, whether that's scarfing down something quick from fast food so you can maximize your productivity and your work, right? There's a lot of different ways that that can look. But what we do with our bodies matters because our bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit and we are to honor God with them. However, I imagine some of us may even question this morning if this is a sin in the first place. But scripture talks about this and not necessarily in great ways. For instance, Proverbs 23, in verse 19, it says, My child, listen and be wise. Keep your heart on the right course. Do not carouse with drunkards or feast with gluttons, for they are on their way to poverty, and too much sleep clothes them in rags. Traditionally, Proverbs is attributed to Solomon, and if Solomon was the one that wrote this, he probably knew a thing or two about gluttony, as he had tons of abundance as a king. But this is something that scripture tells us to be cautious about. So what exactly is it? Gluttony is the excessive and disordered indulgence or pleasure in material delights, normally food. And we're going to focus our time in that more traditional sense of the focus on eating food. But know that this extends to other things as well. One can be gluttonous in regards to drinking, craving that next fine bottle of wine, or feeling this ever-present need to feel a little buzzed or drunk. One can be gluttonous in regards to travel or experiences, craving that next adventure before your current one even ends. One can be gluttonous towards screen time and many different kinds of visual stimulation. So there's a lot of different ways that this can look, but with gluttony, there's always this insatiable desire for more. And in the traditional sense, to be clear, this is a heart problem. It's not that food is evil in and of itself, just like money and sex aren't either. 
like many other sins, it's taking something good and distorting it into an excessive self-gratification. But God created food and its consumption as a really good thing. Food has a pleasing taste, and you have a pleasing feeling of being full after you eat. It's beautiful that something that God created as a need for ourselves, a need for our sustenance, is something that tastes so good. And it's this deep, fulfilling feeling. And if you think about it, all of the cuisine that's in the world, all the different spices and the flavors that God has created, and all the different ways that we can put that together and create these new concoctions and eat and delight in how good it is, right? Food is a good thing. And in Scripture, Think about all the Jewish feasts that were present, all the dietary laws. Think about how much Jesus is around tables in the New Testament, eating with people. And what we do every single week is eat food together. We take of the Lord's Supper. Food is good and God created it as such. However, gluttony elevates the pleasure of eating in an excessive way. Gluttony is more about how much pleasure we take in eating and why. The glutton salivates at the thought of his or her own pleasure. In Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung talks about Gregory the Great, who was a pope in the 6th century, and he made what I'm sure was this super catchy tune or worship song, you, would, you might say, in which he described the five different ways that gluttony can take shape. Too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too greedily, too much. Can't you just imagine how great of a worship song that would be? I think we're really missing out on more songs about gluttony. But the first two on this list are more to do with the what, what we're eating. And the last three are more about how. But it's all related to the heart. And full disclosure, I am guilty of all of these. First, too daintily. This is about delicacy. This is about being hyper-particular and the things that you want to eat. You have to have it your way. This looks like the person that will only eat the finest things and will never settle for something lesser. This looks like the person that is the terror to waiters, giving hyper-specific instructions as to what they want, and if something is just slightly off, they'll be, take it back and get me something better, or I demand a refund. This looks like picky eaters, like imagining the parent and the small child sitting at the table where you're negotiating, okay, one more bite, just eat it, right? This also looks like people who are overly concerned with their diet to the point of idolizing it and glorifying it. And I'm not saying having a diet or being health conscious is bad. It's good to have that. But even that can be something that we become more passionate about than Jesus. Okay, so that's too daintily. The next is too sumptuously. That's a fun word. This is about being very particular about only eating foods that will leave you feeling full. Kind of idolizing that fullness feeling. I'm really guilty of this. Basically since I was born. Um, So I will frequently drive through fast food places because I know you can get a ridiculous amount of quantity for a low cost. I just, I honestly couldn't care less about how great it tastes. I just want to be stuffed after I eat. And that's also why I frequent buffets and enjoy that very deeply. Because it's a guarantee that I will walk out feeling very, very full. But I can make feeling full be an idol. 
The next is too hastily. As that implies, that's eating really quickly. Imagine like two spoons and just shoveling it in, right? That's kind of the idea of hastily. And again, I'm super guilty of this. Sometimes without ever even offering thanks to God for my food, I just get something quick and I almost have a competition with myself to see how fast I can eat something so I can get back to work. And whenever you are only reducing food to it fulfilling a bodily need, but you're not seeing it as a good gift from God, that's another form of gluttony. The next one is too greedily. This is about eating in a way that takes care of yourself above other people. This is actually the problem that was happening with the church in Corinth, where the wealthy people were meeting together and they were eating the Lord's Supper, which used to be like a real meal, and they would eat all the best stuff and then the poor that would come from work would come into the community later and all they'd have left is scraps. And it would be a very shaming thing. So that's one way that that looks, but also um, for us it could be like the person that jumps in line first and Thanksgiving's coming up and some of you might be like, oh, I wanna be the first one to the turkey, to the ham, to the whatever. And I'm not saying being first in line is bad. Someone has to go first. But picking out all the best stuff for yourself. That would be one way that eating greedily looks like. And on a more serious note too, thinking about world hunger on a bigger scale. I mean, we have such a foodie scene here where we can eat all these great things and waste a lot of food, truthfully too, while there are people who are literally dying from starvation in the world. And the last one is too much. And this is probably what people think about Whenever they think about gluttony, this is the person that pertin, <laughs> this is the person that just keeps eating after they are full, that they love the taste so much that even after they are full and have had their fill, they're just like, I just need more. It tastes so good, I can't stop. And that's, I think, partially why we have such an obsession with buffets, and why we have an obsession with chewing gum, which I chew gum all the time, so I'm not like shaming anybody on that. Jim Gaffigan has this funny little bit on gum just talking about how it's practicing eating. Like, we, we love eating so much. We just want to keep consuming. I think of The Hunger Games. I haven't read the books. I normally don't read fiction books, confession, which is bad. Um, but I do what most Americans do and just watch the movie. And in the movie, there's this point, one of the movies, I don't remember which one, there's this point where the main characters go to the capital city and all these really wealthy elite people are eating like all the finest stuff imaginable. And once they get stuffed, they go take a pill that forces them to throw it up. And then they go back and eat more and more and more. I was like, wow, that is one of the most clear pictures of gluttony I've ever seen displayed in something. And for me, this looks like if I get into a full bag of chips or if I get into a pint of ice cream, I can just sort of like black out and then wake up and be like, whoa, it's gone. Where'd it go? So... Those are all different ways that gluttony can take form. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm going to guess that most everybody in here at least was hit by one of those five. We all struggle with this in some way, shape, or form. But you may still be thinking, come on. Like, really? We're going to get this particular about what we're eating and how we eat, and somehow that's like a way to glorify God? Come on, food? That's specific? Turn with me to Numbers chapter 11, if you would. In this context, the Israelites are in the wilderness. And 
God led them out of slavery and is leading them to the promised land. And they start getting tired of the ways in which God has been providing for them. Namely, providing manna. In Numbers 11 verse 4, it says, Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt. We had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this man. I just imagine like the most whiny, complainy voice right there as I read that. But they were craving the good things of Egypt. They wanted the food they used to have. They're tired of the stuff that God is giving them. Quiz, what kind of gluttony is that? You don't have to answer because I don't think you remembered all of them. But it's the first one that I mentioned. Too daintily. About delicacy. They didn't want to eat what was provided. They wanted the fine things of Egypt. And so the Lord hears the cry of the people. And he talks to Moses in verse 18. He says, say to the people, purify yourselves for tomorrow you will have meat to eat. You were whining and the Lord heard you when you cried, oh, for some meat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will have to eat it. And it won't just be for a day or two or for five or for 10 or even 20. You will eat it for a whole month until you gag and are sick of it. For you have rejected the Lord who is here among you. And you have whined to him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? God was frustrated with the people here. To the point that he was like, you know what? I'm going to give you exactly what you want. I'm going to give you an abundance of exactly what you want. He was frustrated that they had so quickly forgotten. They were slaves to these people. (laughs) They were in rough conditions, and God delivered them from that. They were tired of eating what Psalm 78 called the food of angels. So he gave them what they craved, but our cravings aren't always to our benefit. I don't think God's main problem in this situation was that they were craving meat, but more so that they would rather reject God's provisional care and his presence being among them. And they would rather go back to their oppressors. They would rather go back to their previous life than go to their true promised land. But Moses responded to the Lord in verse 21. There are 600,000 foot soldiers here with me. And yet you say, I will give them meat for a whole month. Even if we butchered all of our flocks and herds, would that satisfy them? Even if we caught all the fish in the sea... Would that be enough? Then the Lord said to Moses, Has my arm lost its power? Now you will see whether or not my word comes true. Moses even questioned God himself. We got a lot of people here. Is there a way, is there a way that what you provide is truly enough for me? This is the question that gluttony and real sin and idolatry likes to ask. Is God truly enough to satisfy. But God reminds us of his power. And what we see through the end of the chapter is God gives people tons of quail to feast on, but God ultimately brought judgment on those who were complaining and would have rather been slaves in Egypt. 
than enjoy life with him. And we read in verse 34, it says, So that place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of gluttony, because there they buried the people who had craved meat from Egypt. Gluttony is not something to mess around with. In fact, it can lead us to our graves. We have to be careful, as Paul says in Philippians 3, to not make gods out of our stomachs. Not to be ruled by our appetites and our cravings for more. So yes, even talking about the food that we eat and how we eat it is important for following the way of Jesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, while Paul is talking about all of the destructive ways in which that church was eating and dividing the church in the ways that they were eating. He says this in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So this will blow your mind. I was reading the Greek text this week and the word for whatever, it literally means whatever. (laughs) Whatever you do, All things, big or small, do it for the glory of God. Even something as trivial as eating. Even something as trivial as putting clothes on our body or prioritizing sleep for ourselves. It is all done for the glory of God. Discipleship, following Jesus, becoming like him, isn't just in the things that we like to pick and choose. It's every part of us. Every action, every thought, every motive. Because there is no peace in our souls until Christ is Lord of it all. Jesus says in John 6, as people were just miraculously fed by him and followed him for all the signs and the food that he might provide, they start speaking of wanting to receive the food from heaven like their ancestors did from Moses with manna. And he says this in chapter 6, verse 32. I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Though there are so many cravings in our life, there are so many things that are good that we can become infatuated by. They are never, ever going to satisfy us. Only trying to find fulfillment on physical or emotional pleasure is going to feel good maybe for a moment, but we're going to need to find something else to fill us very shortly after. But our souls will never be satisfied until we experience the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus being the bread of life shows us that even more fundamental than the food that we eat that gives us nourishment and energy to do all the things we do in life, even more fundamental than that is finding our satisfaction solely in him. Because if we are not fed by Christ, we will forever be hungry for more. So how do we actually reject gluttony and grow in our acceptance and believing that Christ is sufficient? The first bit I'd say, it looks like growing in the Christian discipline of temperance. 
which is another way of saying self-control. And there's a balance here with eating, okay? In terms of quantity and how much we enjoy or delight in the food. So we're not supposed to eat too much or too little, but what is appropriate for our health. So like a, an athlete or a pregnant mother might eat more food than normal because that makes sense for their stage of life and season, right? Also, on the flip side, children probably aren't going to be eating as much as adults will be, right? So finding that right quantity is important with temperance. And then on the flip side, there's delighting in it. We need to not delight in it to the point where we elevate it above Jesus. And in a good way that we might be making the taste of food or the pleasure in food, we might be elevating that to a level of idolatry. Look at the language in which you talk about food in comparison to the way that you talk about Jesus. (laughs) If you talk more excited and you're more passionate about food than you are about the risen Christ, there might be something there. But also, talking too little about it or not seeing it as a good that is pleasurable and and a good gift from God, that's also a part of gluttony. Whenever we're reducing it only to, oh, this is just fulfilling my, my bodily needs or whatever, and we're not giving thanks to God for it being a good gift, then we're missing out as well. And a good rule of thumb, a good way to avoid both sides of that pendulum is just pray every time that you eat, every time you eat something. Just give a quick word of thanks and gratitude to God because what you're doing is you're saying, I see this as a good, this is a gift that I don't deserve, but at the same time, I'm not elevating it to the place of you. So that's a a very simple rule of thumb. And let me just say, whenever I'm eating pork ribs, I give thanks to God deeply. (laughs) I say, thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you that all meat is now unclean and I can eat it gladly. So just offer some thanks to God. It's a great way to help with that. And how do we grow in our ability to be in self-control? How do we grow in temperance? Perhaps the single best discipline for this is fasting. I have been so bad at this, like terrible, 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 terrible at fasting in my life. I'm trying to get better. And what I mean by fasting is not just abstaining from food, that's part of it, but it's replacing the hunger for food with a hunger for God. Fasting is one of the most supernatural things that we can do as people. Think about nature for a second, right? Animals, I'm thinking about my dog growing up. If my dog was full, I could put like five steaks in front of him and he would eat it all without blinking, right? Animals naturally just go to food without thinking about it. Whenever you feel that hunger in your stomach, automatically you just start gravitating towards the pantry, right? And you just start eating stuff. That's the natural response, which it's good to have that natural response. We need to know when we're hungry so we can nourish our bodies. But saying no to that natural response is sort of supernatural. Think about this. Jesus went into the wilderness after his baptism, to fast for 40 days, right before he started his ministry. He fled to the desert to build his dependency upon the Father and the Spirit. He started with fasting. St. Evagrius, similarly, who uh, he's the one who people have attributed being the first person to write out the list of the seven deadly sins. He fled 
to the desert to fast, to wage war against the sinful impulses in his heart. And he fasted for a long time because fasting is powerful and it grows this deep intimacy with God. And from my own experience, I can testify to that. Every single time that I have ever fasted, there's never been a a situation where I have felt further away from God. I'm always drawn closer to God. Because fasting helps soak into our being that Christ is truly everything that we need. Which means, for instance, the the shirts that say, all I need is Jesus and coffee. Or all I need is Jesus and my dog. Or Jesus and Nikes. Or whatever, whatever it is that people say. It's honestly idolatry. <laughs> You're saying, I can't survive unless I have Jesus and my dog. You're putting your dog on the same level as the king over all the universe who has saved humanity and is raising us from the dead. So it's really important for us, church, to see that Christ alone is all we need, really. Even if all food and water and everything else was stripped around us, we have nothing left. All we have is Jesus. That is enough. Because in Christ, we will be raised from the dead, and we will experience life everlasting with him. True fasting is a declaration that Jesus is Lord. Fasting helps us identify and destroy our idols. Each time we say no to the hunger impulse that we have, our dependency on Christ strengthens. As we fast, we give up pleasure as an idol. And it grows our ability to say no to all kinds of sin in the future. As such, fasting is a great cure for all kinds of passions of the flesh, including lust, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. Our ability to abstain from all kinds of things is sort of a litmus test of whether something is an idol for us or not. So if we say that food isn't an idol, if we aren't elevating it, how often do you fast would be my question. Because once you start fasting, you realize, wow, I am very attached to this. And it's really hard to say no to it. And it's the same thing with money or sexuality or power, right? Take a step back from it. See how hard it is to say no to it. Then you'll be able to see how much something has become an idol. But fasting helps us see whether or not Jesus truly is Lord of our life. Another benefit to fasting is that fasting grows gratitude in your heart. When we're surrounded by so many blessings, we can become numb to them. That we don't even see them anymore. We can forget about them. But whenever you take something away for a while you start appreciating that thing again. For instance, like whenever Abby is away from home for a week, I realize all the amazing things that she does (laughs) that I don't see all the time. And I also realize that I would be dead at age 35 because my diet looks like Papa John's, Wendy's, and Hattie B's whenever she's gone. And I would totally be destroyed. Similarly, as we fast, as we remove food from our lives, it helps us appreciate it as a good. It helps us appreciate it as a gift, and it helps us appreciate all of God's gifts. So fasting is one part of growing in temperance, and another that might surprise you is feasting. Feasting on occasion is a really good thing. Not only did Jesus fast, 
he celebrated. He partied. He feasted enough to the point in which people started wrongly accusing him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Again, if all we ever did was fast, we would die. And we would miss out on the good gifts of God. Heaven is described as a banquet feast where we're all going to be sitting around God's table together. And it's a banquet with all tribes, tongues, and nations together. Could you imagine for a second sitting at a massive table in which like all the best ethnic cuisine from everywhere is on that table? If that doesn't make you want to be a Christian, I do not know what will. (laughs) But feasting is so important. Think about the components of a feast. One, it's really good food. And there's an abundance of it, so boom, right there. That's great. Also, it's with people. It's in community. We are able to take care of some of the most basic, fundamental human needs. It creates opportunities for love and justice and hospitality. One of the things I love so much about my mother is there were so many situations growing up whenever we would have family gatherings or we'd be celebrating Christmas or Thanksgiving. It was almost a guarantee that there would be somebody in our house that was not a part of our family. Because my mother realized the injustice that has been done to so many people that has left them isolated, alone, with no family. And in a simple act of inviting them to a feast is such a great show of hospitality and the love of Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about a feast is whenever everybody is sitting around a table is that there is unity. And to be clear, unity does not mean agreement on everything. As you guys know, whenever you're going to your families, if you're going to your families for Thanksgiving, the people that you're sitting around the table with, you probably don't agree with on everything. But yet, at the same time, you love them enough to be in their presence, to breathe the same air. And unity is something that Fourth Avenue is actually founded for. It's something that the global church on the whole, however, doesn't do very well. Brothers and sisters are so quick to divide from one another on such insignificant issues. When relationships get hurt instead of doing the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation, people instead choose to leave or sit as far away from that person in church as humanly possible. How quick are we to accept the forgiveness of Jesus and yet don't show it to other people? If there is a brother or sister today in the universe that you would refuse to sit at the same table with, bring that before Jesus. Ask him what to do with that. Jesus' prayer was for us to be unified. So may we as a church be a church of unity. And another reason why feasts are so great is because they represent something significant. It's a time of remembrance and celebration. As I'm continuing right here, any of y'all who want to start passing the trays, I'm going to invite you to go to the back, and after I pray, then you can start passing them. And as we take communion, we're going to take it all together, so hold on to it as you receive it. When I go home to my family, we always eat really good food. It's like the prodigal son coming home, and we have this massive feast, but instead of the cow, uh, we butcher the deer, and it's great. Um, But we eat really good food and feast simply because we're all in the same house. 
whenever we go our separate ways for Thanksgiving and, and join with other people, we are delighting and we're being thankful and grateful for all the gifts that God has given us. And whenever we take of the bread and the cup in communion, we are celebrating the greatest thing to celebrate of all time. We are celebrating Christ's body and blood broken for us. And we celebrate the gospel. In the early church, whenever they took of the Lord's Supper, it was a celebration. People were excited. People were delighting because God, the one who spoke galaxies into existence, took on flesh. He became like us in every way. And he died one of the most gruesome deaths imaginable and gave his life as a ransom for many. And then God raised him from the dead. And through him, all who believe in him will too be raised from the dead. And that is what we celebrate every time that we take the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that death doesn't have the final word. We celebrate that sin does not have the final say in my life, that one day I will be free from this. Every time that we take of this, we are celebrating the true bread of heaven. And we are reminded that we have found everything that we need in Jesus. So let's be a Jesus-only church. Not a Jesus and this hyper-specific doctrine. Not Jesus and this political leaning. Not Jesus and my dog, <laughs> right? Jesus alone. Jesus alone is sufficient. And let's take the act of following Jesus down even to the food that we eat, even into the clothes that we wear, the socks we pick out in the morning, right? How we drive, how we treat our family and our friends and our conversations, right? Every single part of our lives, giving that over to Jesus. To use the words of Paul, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. And Lord, we need your help in that today. Doing whatever, doing all things for your glory sounds like such a daunting task. And by ourselves, we cannot do it. It is only through your spirit, through your grace, that we will be able to say no to all the things that are not of you and yes to your life. Help us, Lord, this morning to take that first small step. We're all at different parts of our lives. We all have different experiences. And we can't just snap our fingers and make us perfectly into your likeness and image, but help us just every day, one small step, surrender a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more to you. Lord, we thank you so much for your body and your blood, the true food of heaven, the bread of immortality. And we pray that you help us to live lives that are in step with who you are in your likeness, in your image. And let us not forget your sacrifice. Let us not forget the great joy that we have that we too will be raised with you and celebrate the great banquet feast with all our brothers and sisters who have gone before us.
pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.